Good morning. Well, this is great. Like uh, BJ said, I am Dan. I'm the children's pastor here at The Journey. Uh, that means generally I have things sticking out of my nose and I talk to puppets. So, But I'm going to probably, I, I may spare you of that this morning. I may. Um, but uh, we are so grateful that you're here today. The motto of the Journey Church, if you are, are new here, um, is know the story, live the story, and tell the story. And for the last several weeks, uh, Pastor Jamie's been talking a whole lot about this idea of telling the story, telling the love story of Christ. Um, now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes that's intimidating, isn't it? I mean, the whole idea of going out and sharing your faith with a world out there Sometimes that can be pretty intimidating. You know, the the whole thought of evangelism, I don't know what kind of images that brings to your mind, but I want you to just think about it with me for a minute. This idea of going out and sharing the gospel, what thoughts come to your mind? Missions? Missions? Tracks. There's one, tracks. Depending on the culture you're in, tracks a little bit. Depending on the culture that you're in, uh, maybe this image comes to your mind. Maybe a tent out in the parking lot of your church. Uh, revival meeting. You know, we bring, bring, bring a speaker in from out of town because he can say all the things that, you know, that he can get back on his horse and leave after he uh, yells a bit. You know, he can come in and preach hellfire and brimstone down on the congregation and then leave. You know, that, that might be a thought that comes into your mind. Or, or this thought. If you're raised maybe in the Northeast, how about a guy on a platform kind of similar to this out on a busy street corner, you know, yelling, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, as people go about their, go about their daily business. Or maybe the thought of evangelism really doesn't bring to mind an image, but maybe it's a feeling. For me, the feeling that it used to bring was guilt. Now, I don't know if you guys any of you guys had that experience, but for me, growing up and as a young believer with my church experience, I I had a lot of guilt associated with this whole idea of sharing my faith. See, as a young believer, I was taught that, you know, if I didn't share my faith with every single person that I came in contact with, that I was somehow going to be responsible for their eternal security. I mean, I, I was taught really young on that, you know what, every person that you see, it is your job to make sure you tell them about Christ. Otherwise, they're going to stand at the great chasm, at the great judgment day, and they're going to look across, and they're going to, and they're going to say, why didn't you tell me? It's your fault. You've got, my blood is on your hands because you didn't tell me. That produced a lot of guilt in me as a young believer, as you can imagine. So, so I did some pretty awkward things. I mean, I did some, I mean, good-hearted, pure-hearted, but I did some really awkward things to share my faith. I, I remember being at a Buffalo Bills game. Okay, go ahead, get your laughs out, okay? They're going to be good this year. Ask Jamie. <laughs> but I remember, seriously, I remember being at a Buffalo Bills game in some of those dark seasons, you know, the 2 and 14 seasons. I remember being there and standing in line to go to the men's room, and I'm thinking to myself, all these people, it, it, it's, it's my job to share my faith with them. And, and the guy behind me, you know, he's like drunk really bad. And he's like, ah, ah, ah. and I'm like, okay, God, I've got to find a way to share with him. 
I've got, I've got to share with this guy. He's standing right behind me, and his blood's going to be on my hands. I'm going to be responsible. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've got to come up with a clever way to share Jesus with this guy. So I'm like, hey, uh, tough game, huh? Yeah, I'm killed. I'm like, uh, um, maybe, maybe if we had Jesus on our team, we'd be doing better, right? Huh? See, I had this idea that if I could just get, you know, if I could just mention the name of Jesus in a way that, that was positive at a Bills game, then God would somehow relieve me of the guilt, you know, and, and, and my responsibility to share the gospel with this guy. I mean, in my early days, I mean, I, I thought about doing, how could I, how could I leave a track, you know, with a, on the urinal? I mean, <laughs> how could I leave a track at the dinner? How could I leave a track on the dinner? How could I share the gospel? In fact, at one time, um, at one time I even thought, okay, well, what if I could just hire a coach, somebody that could to teach me, you know, how to, how to go out and do this thing. And then I started to realize something. Maybe, maybe that's not what Jesus had in mind when he said, go and make disciples of all the world. I mean, maybe we really weren't supposed to be, you know, out there just pushing, pushing, pushing all the time on people. Maybe he had a different plan for it. You know, because here's the deal. Here's the deal. I think for centuries, we, we in the church, we somehow missed the concept of evangelism. I do. I think, I think we somehow just kind of, I think we missed it. I think through the centuries, perhaps sometimes the church has actually done more damage to the kingdom of God than, than, than the good that we're supposed to do. You know, Erwin McManus has a great, great quote. And he says that the greatest enemy to the movement of Christ is Christianity. Think about that for a second. The greatest, the greatest enemy to the movement of Christ is, is Christianity. See, you know, so many times I think the world's not really turned off by the message of Christ. They're turned off by us, the, the messenger. I mean, really, I, I think we've missed the concept so many times that the people get turned off by us. You know, w- w- when we miss the idea of evangelism and what's at the, at the heart of it, we actually do harm to the body because we actually devalue those people that we, we want to reach. And here, here's what I mean by that. Have you ever seen a church or, or a group of people, good-hearted maybe, but actually devalue the person that they're trying to reach, turn them into somewhat of a project? I don't know if you've ever seen that happen before, but I grew up going to a Christian school. and It was, it was a great Christian school. I mean, honestly, I was really, really blessed to go there um it's a great school a great education everybody that i was there with was christians you know they came from good christian homes went to church every sunday um they were the kind of kids you know you, you, you want your kids hanging around with so it was a good environment except for bill 
See, Bill was a kid who showed up my freshman year of high school. Bill basically ended up at my Christian school because he'd been kicked out of every other school in western New York, you know? Like, his mom thought, okay, this is it. This is my last chance at redemption for Bill. If if I can get Bill into this Christian school, just maybe, just maybe, I will keep him keep him out of juvenile hall. And if I can keep him out of juvenile hall, just there's this chance I can keep him out of jail. So Bill's mom made an incredible sacrifice to get him to come to our Christian school. Well, he wasn't there, but I don't know, a week before everybody realized that, okay, Bill's Bill's not a believer. I mean, I, I think the first clue was he lit up a cigarette on the soccer field. And, yeah, it's, at our school, that was like, hmm maybe he's not saved. I don't know. I mean, but our school, our school, I mean, good-hearted. Kids were good-hearted. They went on a campaign like you would not believe to get Bill saved. I mean, we did everything but put a banner up on front of the school that said, unsaved kid here, you know, come see Bill from 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock. He's here, unsaved kid. But, but here's the deal. We made such a fuss about Bill. We took every single opportunity we could find to tell him that he was a sinner. Man, Bill, you're a sinner. You need Christ. Here's this point. Here's the five-point plan. Here's the Romans where to go down this thing, and, you you know, at the end of it, you'll be saved. Here's what happened, though. We missed it. Good intentions, but we missed it. See, we missed the fact that Bill was an immortal soul. We turned him into a project. And catch this. This is how I know this to be true. If any of us would have genuinely, genuinely had a concern for Bill, for his soul and who he was and the the image of God that he was created to be, we would have known that his dad was an alcoholic who had recently drank himself to death. And Bill was just crying out. You know, Bill was just a kid who was crying out, looking for a community to love him just the way he was. Not try to change all the sins in his life. Just love him just the way he was. So I think we, we miss it so many times when we forget that, you know what? There's a world out there that's they're lost, and their greatest need isn't to stop doing all their sins. Their greatest need is to come to Christ and let him change those things. But see, we missed it with Bill, and uh, we missed it because we forgot that he was a human soul. We just saw him as a pet project. You know, I love that quote again by Erwin McManus. I just have to say that again. I mean, because that, that's just worth repeating, isn't it? The greatest enemy to the movement of Christ is Christianity. See, there's just something that happened with Bill that was inauthentic and it was fake. It was cheap. We tried to go to him, and we tried to go to him with, these are the things you do, Bill. Just do these things here. But we didn't make any investment in his life. And it was inauthentic, and it was cheap. See, if any of us would have really bothered to 
build a bridge into his life, we would have had that credibility that Jamie always talks about. Jamie always says, you know what, you have to earn the right to be heard. You have to earn the right to speak truth into someone's life. I call that building a bridge into somebody's life. But but then you think about it, that's kind of risky, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to build a bridge into somebody's life, that is an extremely risky venture. Because what that means is, okay, if I'm going to build a bridge into your life, I'm going to have to risk that you may not want me to do that. I'm going to have to risk that I may have to give up my Saturday for you. I'm going to have to risk that, that, you know what, I may pour myself into your life, and at the end of the day, you still may reject me. It takes courage, and it takes absolute risk to build a bridge into someone's life. But yet, that's what Jesus called us to do. A couple years ago, um, Gina and I went to New York City for the first time. I mean, I am a huge New York City fan. You know, I love New York City. love the Yankees. Big Yankee fan. But we went to New York City. And I got to tell you this, I'm a geek. Okay, you guys don't know me yet. No, I am. I'm, a, I'm seriously, I'm a geek. I'm no fun to go on vacation with because I'm the guy, like we go to Disney World and I go through Small World and I have to figure out how they get that to work. I'm like, I'm going to go home and Google that because I got to know how they made that little guy, you know, little Chinaman, you know, it's Small World. I got I to, everything I do, I have to figure out how does that work. So we go to New York City and we go to the Brooklyn Bridge area. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that area at all, but there's a boat that leaves right below the Brooklyn Bridge. And you've got to go on this thing because it's incredible. If you want the best you know, panoramic view of, of New York City, you have to do this boat ride. So we get on the boat, and we go around, um, go around the Statue of Liberty, and we're, like, checking out the skyline. And it's just romantic. And it's cool. I mean, here's me and Gina. We're in New York City. All right. So we take this boat ride, and we get up by the Brooklyn Bridge, okay? And the tour guide is, is giving us the history of the Brooklyn Bridge, and, and he's, show, he's telling us how this is cool. That thing is a mile long. Did you know that? The span on that thing is a mile long. And, uh, and this was the interesting thing that, that got me. Because of the, the circumference of the earth, you know, it, over a mile, there's an, there's an arc to it. So one side of the bridge actually had to be a little bit higher than the other side of the bridge. So he told me that, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm fascinated by this. You know, I gotta, now i got to know more. i got to know more. So I'm like, hey, buddy, okay, i got a question for you. And I'm like the dumb guy probably on the boat, but I'm like, how did they build those towers? You know, when they, you said you built this bridge in 1878. How did you build those huge towers that support that span that goes, you know, for a mile long? How did they do that? I mean, what did they do, put little men in you know, little subs or something, and take one brick down at a time and, and build this thing? And the guy's like, you know, that's a good question. He said, and it's an interesting question. He said, how they built those towers was like this. They made caissons. None of any, they make these huge caissons. They're like wooden boxes, okay? And they're huge, huge, huge boxes. And they made these things, and they dropped them into the East River. I'm like, Okay. He's like, and then what they did with these caissons was they pumped them full of thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of compressed air. So 
you know, for you divers out there, you, you know how that compressed air thing works. Okay, they, it pushes, it pushes the water back so no water could seep into these boxes, and it kept, they kept the sides strong with all the water pressure around it. So I'm like, okay, they built these boxes. Then what? He says, well, then what would happen is, hundreds of men would line up and wait for their opportunity to go into this caisson, get to the bottom of it. He says about 70 to 90 degrees at the bottom, and no light, you know, work by candlelight, rip the floor out, and then start digging at the earth underneath until they hit the limestone. He says, well, then once they did that, they would build blocks, you know, until they built these towers. I'm like, man, that's a cool job. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. That wasn't a cool job. I'm like, well, that'd be kind of neat. He goes, no. See, what you got to understand, Dan, was they, they had to work for hours and hours in compressed air. Do you know what that does to you? And I'm like, no. He goes, it gives you a disease called or a condition called the bends. Okay? You divers out there know what the bends are. See, what, what happens with the bends is when your oxygen levels, and I, you know, Michael knows a whole lot more about it than I do, but your oxygen levels get kind of messed up and you end up with nitrogen in your blood. And if you, when you come out of that area, your body goes into like stroke-like symptoms. You know, your joints get swelled up. Um, you lose, you lose your um, motor skills. In many cases, you just got extremely sick, and then you died. And I'm like, great job. <laughs> and you're telling me people lined up to work in these caissons. He said, yeah, they would line up. He said they'd line up by the hundreds, and they couldn't wait to get in there to work. I'm like, why? Why would anybody want to risk that much to work in the caissons? He said, because they were afraid of being isolated. Like, hey, buddy, you're, you're just not making any sense to me. What are you talking about? He said, look, back in 1878, if you lived in Brooklyn and you worked in Manhattan, you couldn't get there, okay? The East River would get covered with ice, and you couldn't ferry boat across. You were stranded, so you'd be out of work. Or if your family lived in Manhattan, and you had to go to Brooklyn for whatever, you couldn't get there. For four to six months a year, you were cut off. They were, they were cut off. You, you, you lived in Brooklyn, right? Okay. You know, but they were cut off. And the discomfort from being cut off caused these men to risk so greatly that they would risk their life, they would risk their body, they would do whatever it takes to get this bridge built so there could be a connection between Brooklyn and between Manhattan. And I thought to myself, wow. We are called to build bridges into the lives of other people. And it's going to be risky, just like it was risky for those guys to build that bridge from Manhattan to Brooklyn. But we called to do that. Those guys, they knew what risk was all about. But here's, here's, here's my question to you. You know, we live in a society that's really pretty private, isn't it? I mean, you say to yourself, Dan, that's great. This whole idea of going out and serving to gain truth, I mean, this whole idea of building bridges into people's lives, that's, that's great. But what if... People really don't want me to. 
I mean, don't we? We live in a culture that says, be private. Put a security system on your house. Lock the doors. When you go to church, oh, yeah, put a fake smile on when you go to church because you don't really want to let anybody in to know if you're hurting or not, you know? We live in a culture that is really private. So how do we do this thing? How do we, how do we go about evangelism in a way that isn't inauthentic or fake or cheap? And how do we build a bridge into someone's life when we're, many times they just don't want us to? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up with me to First Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Because see here, Peter gives us a really, really good blueprint on how you build a bridge. I think it's a great one. I'm reading from the NIV. He says, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Catch this. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. What an incredible, incredible blueprint. He says, look, if you want to build a bridge into someone's life, when times are difficult for you, when times are, when times are so crazy, when you don't know where the mortgage payment is going to come from, when you don't know what the doctor's report's going to be, when you don't know, when you, when you don't have a clue of how you can fix this relationship that's been torn apart, look at what Peter says. He says, don't fear. Don't allow yourselves to be frightened, but instead, find a way to make the most of Christ. What an incredible, incredible blueprint to follow for building a bridge. He says, no matter what you're going through, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but make the most of Christ is basically what he's saying. You know, J- John Piper describes that, making the most of Christ is simply this. This is, this is good. He says this. Making the most of Christ is simply living, thinking, and dreaming in such a way that it reveals the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth of God. Let me repeat that again. Making the most of Christ is this. Living, thinking, dreaming in such a way that it reveals the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth of God. See, when you and I, when we focus our lives on the great beauty and the worth of our creator, regardless of the circumstances we're in, Look what happens in verse 15. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope. Here's what we need to know. Our life should be so fascinating, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, it should be so fascinating that people cannot help but question and ask you why. Why? Why, do you, why are you still smiling when everything around you is falling apart? As a children's pastor, one of the uh, privileges I, I have, 
and sometimes emotional experiences is I, I get to go to the hospital and I get to visit um, sick children. As you can imagine, that, that is, I'm, and I'm an emotional guy. I mean, my, the youth group was here last week from Florida. I remember them, and they counted how many times I cried during the week. And it was VBS, and I'm crying. But I'm an emotional guy. So going to the hospital to, to, visit, to visit sick children is incredibly uh, emotional. But a few weeks back, I had uh, a really great experience. I got to go visit a seven-year-old girl who was having surgery on, on her hips and her legs. See, this girl, at the age of two, suffered a seizure that uh, left her pretty much paralyzed from her, from her neck down. She lost her ability to speak. So most of her life since the age of two, well, all of her life since the age of two, has been spent in this wheelchair. And, and a lot of growth occurs between the age of two and grade seven, as you know. And, and because of the growth and sitting in a wheelchair for so many years, her hips became displaced. The, the leg bones actually grow like this, out. So the doctors deemed that, you know what, the best thing to do for her is we're going to have to break both of her legs and break both of her hips, and we'll reset them so they can grow straight again. I'm like, okay. God, i got to ask you, what were you thinking? I mean, this poor girl at two years old, she has a condition that strips her pretty much of life that you and I take for granted. You stripped it. You allowed it to be stripped. And now she's got to go through this pain of having both of her legs broken, her hips broken, be in a body cast for all summer. I'm like, God, okay, give me strength to go on this visit because I don't get it. And I think it's okay to tell God from now on. You know, I just don't get it. So, I go into the room, and I got to tell you, it was a life-changing experience for me. See, I saw a little girl laying in a bed in a full-body cast, you know, just like you'd almost see in the movies with her legs elevated. But I got to see a dad kiss his little angel's forehead, stroke her hair. I saw mom frantically rushing around the room to make sure that she had a, a glass of water with a straw so she could sip it and mom dab her cheek and then this is what changed everything I saw a seven year old girl with a smile that could light up the room honestly I sat in that room and I pondered I said how are they doing this it fascinated me. I'm like, God, I've known you for a lot of years, but how is this family showing so much joy and hope and love in the midst of this cruddy circumstance? See, that's what Peter's talking about. When you live your life in such a way to make people ponder, question how you're doing it, You've got the ability to build a bridge into their life. You know, suffering and, and tragedy and that, that, that stuff is a way, when we handle it by making the most of Christ, it, it builds a bridge into someone's life. But you know what? It's not always that way. 
it's not always just because of the tough things and the tough struggles that we go through. Many times we have the opportunity to build a bridge into someone's life when we live out the dreams that we have. Seriously, have you ever noticed, aren't you fascinated by somebody who gets to live their dream? Isn't it fascinating? I mean, come on, I know it's fascinating because we all rush home on Tuesdays and Wednesday nights to watch American Idol. I mean, we want to see these young kids get to live the dream. I mean, we do. We, we, we see this and we're like, we see certain people who, who, who live the dream and we think to ourselves, man, how'd they do it? How, how did they do it? What was it? That, what allowed them to live out their dream? See, we, we're all built with a dream and a hope and a vision for our lives. I mean, God implants it in us, and God dreams for you. He has a dream for your life. You know, Jeremiah tells us that I know the plans that I have for you, to prosper you, they're for good. We all start off uh, in life with this, with this dream that God has for us. But somewhere along the way, so many times, oftentimes, we, we, we forget it. We either, it's either stolen from us or the, the mundane things of life steal that from us. But every now and again, we see someone who lives the dream. And we get fascinated by it. We question it. Here's what you need to know. When you live out the dreams that God has for you, not only, not only does it bring a smile to his face because you, you're his child, are doing what he created you to do, but it's allowing you to build a bridge into someone else's life because people are going to question and they're going to ask, how'd you do it? What is it? Why are you so happy? Why are you so joyful? See, the way God designed us in this whole idea of community is we are always affecting other people. I got to say that again because, man, that's, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? We are always affecting somebody else. We're either doing it positively or we're doing it negatively. But we can't stop it. We're always affecting somebody else. I like that. That's a... That's a pretty powerful statement. Because if you think about it, can you imagine? Can you imagine the effect that you can have on somebody else when no matter what the tragedy is you're going through or the hardship you're going through, you, you, you still make the most of Christ? Oh, or can you imagine if you actually lived out the dream and the desire that God placed in your heart? what people would say. I mean, think, think with you for a minute. How different, how, how different would, would it look if instead of being so concerned all the time about trying to awkwardly put Jesus into a conversation, if we just loved people until they ask the question, why do, you, why, why do you care about me? How different would that look? I mean, how different would it look if when your neighbor knows that, that 
things are tough for you, you still went out of your way to mow their lawn. See, how different would it be if at the water cooler on Monday morning people were talking about, man, why is, why is he so positive all the time? Why is, why is she got a smile on her face? You know, her boyfriend just dumped her. I mean, how different would it be if people actually asked us the question? You know, Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the question that people are asking. How different would it be if somebody actually asked the question? See, there's just something inauthentic and fake. It's about leaving a track and just disappearing. It, it takes no investment at all. It's easy. But it's not easy to build a bridge into somebody else's life. So we're going to take a moment. We're just going to close our eyes. Our heads. We're going to just reflect for a second. I'm just going to ask. Is anybody asking the question? Is anybody asking, why do you have so much hope? Is anybody asking, how are you doing it? This morning, let that be the prayer of our heart. Father, I think of all those people in my community that, Lord, I have not even yet begun to meet. Open up avenues for me to build a bridge into their life, God. Father, I don't want to cheapen your message. I don't want to look for an easy way out, God. I don't want to just drop your name and run. God, I want to build into other people. Bring those people to me, God. And bring those people to the journey, God. That we can be a community of believers that is talked about amongst this community because we love people just the way they are. Let them ask the question.